So now we've officially started the format that Season 4 is going to take. Arcs, like I said. Part 1 of 3. mentioned this a few times. This one's by Ken Lezabnik. He's only done this episode and one other episode, which we're not to yet. It'll come up in a bit. But we did have Livingston directing this, and you can tell because the way he uses the camera. They also had a decent amount of new set stuff, which is interesting in its own right. <coughs> oh, its own right. Oh, my gosh. Excuse me. Where did that come from? Uh, I'll try water first. I'll try water. Pardon me. We also have Orion's. Now, if you don't understand the significance of that, even though the Syndicate was back in DS9, there were no Orion's. I actually talk about this over in TAS. I don't know when that episode's going live in relation to this one. But let me put a little bit of a number on that. The episode in TAS, which is the last time we've seen the Orion's, was in 1979 or 4. That might be a 4. That looks like a 4. <laughs> and that sounds better because 9 would be too late. So yeah, 1974, which uh, is pretty impressive since this is 2004. So that's a bit of a gap. <laughs> the We see Hertzler. This is actually Hertzler's final in inclusion into the series, is what I was going to say until I noticed when I looked up his cast sheet that he's actually done something over in uh, Lower Decks, I believe, which obviously I have no idea about. But, hey, the final, for our purposes, Hertzler introduction. And, of course, he's a Klingon. Here's another weird thought, speaking of dates. I looked it up. He was uh, the Vulcan captain, the unnamed Vulcan captain of the Saratoga, all the way back in Emissary. You remember that? when the ship was being destroyed by, you know, the Borg, Wolf 359. That was him. It was his first role in Star Trek. I don't think I even commented on that in the rumination on Emissary, because to be completely honest, I think I missed that until I was looking up stuff for Hertzler later when it came to uh, Martok. And I saw that, I was like, huh. But that means Hertzler has been worth the show for, or the shows, I suppose, 12 years, which is pretty impressive. Either way, <clears throat> so we have... The, the augments show up, and I gotta ask, what's with the Mad Max look? It makes at least a little bit of sense early on, but, like, they just have this... It looks stylized, is what it is. And, of course, it is, because someone actually designed the outfit. But what I mean is, it doesn't look like they're wearing outfits that are too small for them, or outfits that have had wear and tear. It looks like they have outfits that they've taken a knife to and cut, like, like you do with nylon, right? In order to make that kind of... Uh, there's a term for that. It's a specific fashion thing, and you do it with cloth, and you specifically do it with, like, tightly woven cloth, so it produces these kind of tears and rips. Maybe this was what they did in their spare time? I mean, they couldn't have had a lot to do. They were probably really, really bored. Anywho, <clears throat> they show up. Hi! The cold open establishes several things very quickly. It also kind of follows the into darkness thing. I talked back in Space Seed, which has gone live by now, about how the difficulty existed for them to try and make the Supermen the Supermen, right? Like, they couldn't really show all that stuff because it was the 60s. It wasn't until, in my opinion, Star Trek Into Darkness, where we got to see what these kind of augments could really do. And, well, that's actually one of the things I liked about that movie. One of the only things I liked about that movie. <clears throat> but here we see a similar thing. We see that they are, they can take the blows, they can dodge the blasts, and two people can manage to take an entire bird of prey by themselves. Granted, the Klingons weren't really expecting the fight, so it's not a completely fair fight, but they still managed to, to grab the bird, and that is still pretty impressive. 
You ever wonder what they did with the Klingons that were on the ship? Just think about it. <clears throat> so, Brent Spiner. Now, Spiner is framed as a villain for this entire episode. I'm only mentioning that because it'll come up in the future, but also because it's funny how neatly he slides into this role. After all, he always did do well as lore. You know what I mean. I'm not evil. He's evil. I'm not. It's it's dif different. Point being that Spiner, he comes across a bit as the mad scientist, but in a weird kind of a way, and he gets an odd amount of characterization throughout this episode, which, again, we will talk more about as we go forwards. It is amusing, though. His point with Archer, the point he makes, is actually quite simple. Technology is a tool. We shouldn't be afraid to use tools. We should just use them properly. Huh. I feel like Spiner's the kind of person who looked at Khan and the fellows, you know, the fellow Superman, and said, hmm, yeah, that was a mistake. Let's, let's try that again, but better this time. Now, what's interesting about that is I, I would legitimately like to know what your thoughts are on that. Because in some cases, I could just picture someone saying, God, what an idiot. And in other cases, I can imagine someone saying, yeah, that makes sense. As always, for me, it's kind of a case-by-case -case thing. But I do, I can't believe I'm saying this, I do tend to lean more towards Sung's side than not. Tools are tools. Any tool can be dangerous, utilized improperly, or developed incorrectly. Using it properly, using it correctly, that's the tricky part, not the tool. So, I don't know, genetic mutation, genetic alteration, is that the kind of thing that should be allowed? We've actually discussed this several times before since this came up back on Deep Space Nine, and it was discussed you know, in, in the episode there as well. I don't have much to say about it here, because Sung himself says most of it for me. I'm kidding. I'm, I, like I said, I'm not completely on his side, because even if you decide to allow it, you have the Deus Ex problem. Where's the line? Because if you allow genetic engineering, you have to define how much is allowed, and in what circumstances is it, it is allowed within, right? <clears throat> to use a bad parallel, this is a terrible analogy, but alcohol is legal under the right circumstances in the right places, at the right times. You can't drive or fly or do certain types of things while drunk. You can't be at work while drunk, right? But you can get an out, you can get a beer or a wine or whatever and go home and just have a drink. That's legal. And thus, even though it is legal, it is still regulated. So there would have to be some kind of regulation for this, which by logical default would mean there would be people who are violating that regulation. And you see how this would then lead to another layer. Do we allow it or not? Yes or no. How do we regulate it? Which is a far more complex question. And how do we deal with the people who violate those regulations? I don't think Soong is thinking of any of those steps, really. He's just trying to think of how to make it the best implementation possible. To fix the mistakes that were previously done. Of course, as this and the next two episodes will show, he hasn't fixed those mistakes. Which could boil down to him not having figured it out yet. Or maybe there's certain things that are outside of his control, a very common theme in much of fiction going back as far as the 50s, is the idea that technology grows outside of our control, and that there are certain things we, man was not meant to touch. I say that in such a dismissive term because I disagree with the idea in its entirety. I'm down for, you know, the moderation, I'm down for reasonable action, I'm down for careful and responsible uh, interaction with dangerous things, but... 
I'm not, you know, man was never meant to fly. Xenomorphs were probably never meant for that one, but I'll give you that one. <clears throat> anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to get up on that topic here. Let's go ahead and scooch forward here. This then leads to the, the big line there. Human? Not quite. And he immediately picks up on what's going on. We find out that this whole scenario occurred in the Borderland, which is an area in between Orion space, mentioned them earlier, and Klingon space. That's cute. I guess the Klingons haven't annexed Orion yet. <laughs> we also see a little bit of Klingon politics, because the Klingons are, of course, trying to deal with this, but the idea, what I'm trying to say is, this, this is Klingon politics in a nutshell, even in this era. If the Klingons had acted as they state they could or would, they have full rights to go to war. Now, they could just do that. They don't, because that's not how Klingon politics and Klingon culture work. The disgraced is given a chance to redeem their honor. That's normal in Klingon culture and politics. Even for someone who is an enemy, that's still kind of a thing. So, EarthGov, Starfleet, is given the choice, or the chance. Fix this, or we'll fix it for you. Now, <clears throat> this also uh, makes Enterprise and the NX-01 relevant once again. This I keep coming back to this point. This is something I emphasized a lot back in Season 1 and have been pushing for the Enterprise uh, rewrite as well. The idea that the NX-01 is truly unique because it is their one fast ship. It's also probably their biggest ship out there, but the point is, this is a big deal because they've only got the one carrier in the Pacific, you know? Their ship, fastest one, can get out here and deal with this in time to deal with the Klingon demands and the unstable situation that they're walking into. Makes sense. Still relevant, so that's nice. We then cut to another version of politics, which is Malik and Rakeen. So Malik's like, hey, I took this ship, and Rakeen's like, that's cool. Smack! Sign of dominance number one, physically attacking the other. Sign of dominance number two, grabbing the hand of the desired female. Now, Persis will have her own character stuff later, and as we see in this episode, she is uh, manipulating circles around both men. But the reality here is that this is such basic tribal stuff. Not, not tribalism in the way it's usually said. I mean, this is low-level caveman stuff, which actually makes perfect sense, if you think about it. The Augments, we never, at least I don't think we ever get this definitively, but as presented in this episode, we see that these Augments haven't really had a chance to develop. Oh, they're strong and they can think and all that, but they haven't had a chance to develop. One of the things I talked about back in, I think it was Rebels, Star Wars Rebels, the Minonations for that, was the idea of what happens to clones who only ever get to interact with other clones. Because droid effect and the nature of what implies droid effect requires external stimuli. You need someone to bounce ideas off of so you can bounce ideas back so those ideas can uh, prompt new concepts, new thoughts, and develop into a fully fleshed out, fully developed mind and emotional uh, grid, right? This is something I've talked about many times. I, I say this with total certainty because I have seen so much evidence of this in real life, and this is almost universally true in fiction. I will admit I don't know if this is actually true. This is simply my own theory, I suppose is the word, based on evidence and speculation. So I'm going to presume it's true, especially for the case of fiction, but it's entirely possible that I'm just an idiot. I mean, obviously I'm an idiot, but I mean, in addition to that, 
double idiot, maybe. Like, like you get a Big Mac, and then you're like, well, can I double-size that? And they're like, no, you can't. You can only double-size the drink, you idiot. That's the kind of idiot I am. Now, in order to really discuss this, though, we have to think about the Augments and their survivalist situation. They didn't have people to interact with other than themselves. They didn't have anything to go off of other than the random teachings that were left to them in a brief period of time by their father. So what do they have? They have... Kindergarten. It's it's the kindergarten playground. It is. The way they and, the, and this is clearly intentional. They act as if they are children and they bounce off of each other as if they are children. They are children who have happened to make it to the teenage range, so there's a few other things involved there, like with Persis, and you know, actual violence and actual killing. But other than that, that is the level of development they've gotten to. It's actually a shame, really. And if I might be so bold, is probably one of the best showcasings of what I mean by my earlier point about the uh, the illegality of this. Now, I brought up this point on Deep Space Nine as well. Quite a few people disagreed with me on it, which is fine. This is actually a very complex topic, and obviously we're not all going to agree on it. But once the illegal act has happened, continuing to punish the victims of this, in this case, the augments themselves, for the crimes of something that was done to them is a very unusual choice for me. And ultimately just makes the situation worse, in my opinion. Now we discussed this to death back in Deep Space Nine, so I'm not going to rehash all of this. All I want to say here is that these kids could have grown up amongst people and actually interacted with a culture and a society and become part of that society, but instead they were reduced to what is effectively the classic definition of a barbarian. They weren't Roman. But also they were, you know... <laughs> so I guess both definitions of a, of a Roman... <laughs> Sorry. I'm in a snarky mood today. I don't know why. I'm in a good mood. <laughs> so, yeah, this this is just a whole mess. This cuts to Spiner. Soon. I really like how he comes across as an affable asshole here. It's like a friendly form of trolling. There's... And I don't know how better to explain that, because he pokes at people. But it's mostly just because he's trying to keep them off balance... And because he does have legitimate interests, he's... I don't know how much of this is down to the script or how much of it is down to Livingston and how much is down to the actor, but he comes across as someone who is at the very least two-dimensional. He's not just, <laughs> and he's not just, I'm a dick. Instead, what you see is that some shine, some some aspects of genuineness shine through him periodically. And I, I attribute that especially to the acting. Again, whether it's the director, the writer, or the actor pulling that out. He has moments of actual decency, I guess the word I want to use for it. And even that decency is more a matter of respect than anything else. Like, for example, the way he talks to, to Paul and the Vulcan things. Or um, the manner in which he wants to interact with flocks And how Phlox shuts him down. And he actually takes that. Well, he engages in the debate with Phlox, the scientific debate of two scientists arguing with each other. When Phlox responds, I, I can tell you have not done what a scientist should do, learn from the past, which is arguably one of the core definitions of what scientific means, you know, the scientific method, test, retest, right? So he accuses Sung of that, and Sung has no rejoinder for that because he legitimately values Flock's opinion on the matter enough to actually think about it. Just little tidbits like that. <sighs> Anyways, poor Reed's publicity. Side note, apparently even the prison gets news about the NX crew. 
I find myself wondering of the conditions of that prison. Because it's not exactly shown to be a hellhole. It's quite clean and quite well kept. And he is allowed to, to, to dry out his things and do that stuff. And then it's all burnt to ash. But I do find myself wondering, A, if it's actually burnt. Because I could see certain groups, Section 31, excuse me, trying to get their whole their hands on whatever it is he's designing. But B, I wonder how well he's treated there. Now, he is obviously super max security. Because... He has managed to escape so many times in at least... We are implied that it's been creative how he has been trying to escape. We see an escape attempt in this episode. We hear about a previous one. And with those two, we get the idea that he's been a problem prisoner. But even this prison seems like it's decently kept. It is also interesting in contrast to something like, say, the New Zealand penal colony, which we see back in Caretaker... Now, yes, I know that's gen- generations from now when Star Trek has, you know, Earth has developed so much that scarcity is gone and they've been able to take care of so many things back on Earth that, yeah, that place can look like a resort by Voyager's time. But it's also worth noting that even in, even keeping the technology and the times and resources and economics in mind, Paris was a willing prisoner, whereas Soong is not. I find myself wondering how many ma- super max or supermax prisons we have in there. This is something STO actually covers. But to my knowledge, Trek itself does not. We don't have many Hannibal Lecters in the Star Trek universe. Anyways, so this is when we find out about the honeymoon and the fact that she left two weeks after Tucker did from Vulcan. Huh. Oh, and there's the new chair. We get to see some of the new set dressing here. Uh, that's actually the chair from Star Trek Nemesis. It, it's kind of immediately obvious that it's one of the movie set pieces, which is fine. I mentioned before how their budget was destroyed for this for this season. One of the things they did a lot of was they would actively go out of their way to reuse props and set pieces even more than they already did. I mean, that's always been a Trek thing. Some fans have made it kind of a game of following the path of certain props across multiple different things because it's it's funny, right? Like it's like here, here is the sacred artifact of such and such, which in this episode is actually a power conduit, which in this episode is now you know a toothbrush. It's just it's funny to think of, but in this case they started reusing some of the big stuff because it's a lot cheaper than trying to do anything else, and they did want to update the look because they were trying to reinvent the show. Remember, the goal in mind here was to not just, you know, revitalize... I'm saying this wrong. The goal was to revitalize the show, but it was also to try and prove the viability so their budget would go back up, and they'll be able to get their next two or three seasons or whatever. Anyways. So, Archer gives his first good speech in the entire show. And I quote, Here we are again. Wouldn't have it any other way. And that is actually a good speech. I'll give you that. He then gives uh, to Paul a gift of a compass, and we see once again the total contrast between how they interact here and how they interacted back in season one. By the way, it's a good time to mention that Alec Newman, who plays uh, Malik, used to be Paul Atreides. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't be the only one who finds there. Is, is that like a thing? C- can you be... I mean, I know you can be locked into like an archetype, but being a, a genetically engineered super person, is that a, a type Can he be cast as such a type? I don't know. Whatever. So, Phlox gives the disdain. I mentioned this here. Thought occurred to me. Phlox mentions that Denobulans do genetic engineering. In the future, we know the Federation has outlawed genetic engineering. Do you see the problem here? This is interesting. 
I am reminded in many ways of the EU here in real life. I'm not going to get into real life modern politics, but you join, you would agree to adhere to the rules, even if you have previously been in violation of them. You know, if you if you are totally cool with genetic engineering, but you want to join the Federation, which hasn't been founded yet, but you know, if if a Federation was founded, they then adopt the rules of humanity, which includes the genetic engineering ban. So Denobula would have to stop genetic engineering. That's interesting. I also find myself wondering if that's the kind of thing that could be hammered out in treaty. That's certain, again, like the EU, because the rules of the EU don't apply literally across every member, and there's actually different layers and types of membership of the EU. It could be the same thing with the feds. Sadly, this is something that's never really discussed because nobody wants to listen to politics and organization in Star Trek. Don't be ridiculous. <clears throat> So, the Orion's attack. Cool. They use the transporters. Cool. We see more dr drama with the augments. Cool. Um, I want you to picture being a member of Starfleet and being in a slave market. That would probably be pretty horrific. I want you to imagine you're a fresh ensign who's just, just, just joined the ship and ready to go, and now you're in a slave market. It's a nice little tidbit, and he, um, yeah, he... <laughs> He freaks out pretty much exactly how he should. I can't undersell this. I say this jokingly. It's hard to overstate how much of an impact this kind of horrific and barbaric treatment will affect someone who is innocent. Someone who does not deserve it or should not be there or shouldn't be a part of that type, that, that, that level of society. This is actually legitimately horrific. That ensign might need therapy for several years after this in order to deal with this trauma. No joke. It is interesting, though, to once again showcase the approach that Season 4 has, and that ensign just been introduced does not actually die in this episode. I only point that out because I had the thought as the episode was going by that I didn't remember if he did die or not, and if this was any other episode of Trek, I would automatically assume he does. I mean, that's the joke, right? Okay, I'm going to be beaming down to the surface. I'll be taking Commander Data, Commander Riker, and Ensign What's-His-Face. And, and you know why the Ensign What's-His-Face is there, right? That, that's the job of the Ensign What's-His-Face. You know, the yellow shirts and the red shirts. But no, he lives. Yay. This is also something I want to point out, because it's going to come up much later. The Orions sell their own women into slavery. That is very interesting, given what we learn about their women later. I just want you to remember that. Because that is certainly a fascinating way to infiltrate other species. It's probably one of the reasons the Orion Syndicate has the power it does. Anyways, so then Malik kills Rakim. Huh. That's, uh... Interesting. Don't cry for him, though. Don't cry. That would be showing weakness. That's another thing. They've kind of got this survivalist thing going for them. Probably because they've had a survivalist upbringing. I wonder what kind of people these people would develop into if they'd had an actual upbringing back on Earth. I, I don't mean to keep rehashing the point. But that line, don't, not for him, just says everything it needs to, doesn't it? Now, I know, it's also partially because he is not our brother anymore. He has betrayed us. And I, I don't know what that accent's about. He has betrayed us, and therefore he does not exist anymore. 
You'll also notice that that is, in continuing the parallel back in home, very tribal line mentality. This is straight up line mentality. There's a variance between tribalism and line mentality. Basically, line mentality is a more simplified and more extreme version of tribalism. There's a line, bad, good. Tribalism can have gradients. Tribalism can account for more than one group and more than one concept at a time. And tribalism usually isn't taken to an extreme. But line mentality is by definition an extreme. Since my, so all line mentality is tribalism, but not all tribalism is line mentality. I just wanted to clarify that because I've had a few questions about that. Anyways, this is line mentality. You violated father's teachings. And you're on the other side of the line. At that point, it's acceptable to stab him because he's on the other side of the line. No other information is required. Very simple. So, remember how I mentioned the low-tech thing? This is another advantage of the low-tech thing. If this was the TNG era and they're like, all right, we need to save these people, I'd be sitting here yelling at the ca- the, the, the TV, the camera. <laughs> I'd be yelling at the TV and being like, just beam them up. Scan for humans, beam up. Is that too much? Okay. Deactivate the colors and then beam everyone up. You got room. But on the NXL one they don't have that good of scanners. They don't have that many transporters. And they don't have room to take care of all these people. Or the infrastructure or basis necessary. So the low-tech thing applies multiple ways here. Just continuing to point it out. And pointing out how Season 4 continues to use that low-tech thing to its advantage. Sung reveals his motives... Oh, real quick, and Big Show was there. <laughs> the, the wrestler. <laughs> I wonder if he needed help to lift Jolene Blaylock bodily like that. Like, he's a big guy. He's like seven foot, I think. And he, he's pretty strong, but I wonder if he actually needed assistance to do that. He apparently lifted David Livingston without issue. Anyways. <laughs> Sung reveals his motives for the first time here. He is not interested in hurting people. He's not interested in conquest or power. This isn't about this. And when he expresses his regret about causing harm to the rest of the crew, or potentially causing harm, there's a legitimacy to how he says it. He really doesn't want them hurt. And when the the augments take the ship, he is overjoyed, like a father being returned to his children. There's a genuine human warmth to that. That helps to add some nuance to him. And when asked what to do with the crew, and notice that Malik is totally in favor of killing them, his response is, let him go. We're not here to hurt people. And he also mentions, of course, the benefits of genetic engineering. I get the really strong impression that Soong, this Soong, has railed against everyone around him, probably in the decades range at this point. Just Nobody agrees with them. Nobody listens to them. We could solve this medical issue and this medical issue. We could improve this aspect of our lives. We could, why, why is nobody listening to me? And everyone just keeps shutting him down and treating him like he's a mad scientist. As horrible as this sounds, I wonder if anybody had legitimately reached out to Sung as a person and tried to treat him like a person, if he would have been a little bit less extreme than he is. Because he, you get from his presentation, and again, acting, writing, directing, you get from his presentation that he's so defensive about it constantly that he feels the need to constantly justify his actions, to constantly make his point. 
damn it. This is the way things are. This is the way things should be. And it could be this and this. And God, I've, I've spent years in prison just thinking of all the ways this could improve our society and help our people. God's sakes, why aren't we doing this? And nobody listens. Because all everyone says is, well, you know, there's that one time. <laughs> now, again, I'm not saying I'm on Sung's side, because I'm actually not. What Sung is doing is irresponsible and reckless. But I absolutely sympathize with him. Because the idea of just ranting endlessly at a system that has absolutely no idea what it's doing and is actively wrong is something that I understand extremely well. <sighs> to Paul and Tucker have a good moment. The Orions show up again. Why are the Orions just pasting the Enterprise every time they show up? It's it's two ships, sure, but this is the NX-01, which was upgraded in Season 3 and upgraded in Season 4. This is the best ship that Earth has to offer, and it's also the only ship Earth has to offer of this, of this class. <sighs> Whatever. Random thought. What do you think EarthGov would do with the Augments if they successfully caught them? If they came in peacefully? Real question. Remember that we already know what they do with unwanted Augments back in D-Space 9, but obviously that's a ways from now. So what would they do now? The really horrible thing is, well, they'd either imprison them or, you know, try and sentence them to some kind of isolated life as a danger to society, or, and this is my personal favorite, hand them over to Cl the Klingons on a silver platter as a peace offering. Not exactly a lot of motivation to turn yourself in willingly as a Truth be told, though, I don't actually know what EarthGov planned to do with these people. What do you think? I keep asking these questions in the video and forgetting to put them. I like to put something at the little end card, and I usually like to have little questions there. And I'm Paulers. I keep putting those questions in the videos. It's one of the reasons why the end cards haven't had a lot of questions in the last few episodes. I apologize for that. Uh, maybe I'll come up with something else. But in the interim, I will see you next time for part two.